This is part eight of a ten-part series describing the Makos in Mitzrayim. The eighth, the eighth Maka, the Maka of Arbe, is obviously a new chapter, is obviously a new beginning, as evidenced by the fact that it begins a new parsha in the Torah. It begins Parsha's bow. The first seven are contained within Vaira. The last three are inserted into bow. But it's not just the sequencing and the segmentation of the parshios which suggests that it's different. But it's the warning, not all the Makos had a warning. It's the extensive discussion of Arba, as I mentioned, the 20 plus psukim describing Barad. So Arba also has 20 psukim describing it from start to finish. The very lengthy um, introduction that Hashem directs Moshe to warn Paro, Ken Yechbaditius Libo, um, Paro, to a degree, to a degree, um, is a little bit uh, flexible. Certainly, his Avadim, and the Avadim don't have to be his servants, they could be his noblemen and his allies. They urged him, they campaigned to liberate the Jewish people. So you're starting to see cracks in the armor of the Egyptian political system of this political front of Paro. Not everyone is willing to suffer another Maka. Um, ultimately, their opinion is rejected, and Paro remains resolute, in part because HaKadosh Baruch Hu strengthens his heart, or makes his heart even heavier, and, and here the word is used, not just Hashem strengthens, but makes his heart heavy. I, I gave a share about this, what is it, what's the difference between a strong heart and a heavy heart? Um... In part because you can tell that this is a new beginning because Am Yisrael is expected to take more notice of this Makkah than they had in the past. In the past, they were either on the sidelines, neutral observers, or protected, sheltered. In fact, they had very little role in Vaira. There was a role that was intended, Hashem dispatched Moshe to rally the troops, so to speak, but... The response is underwhelming. They're very quiet, they're very passive, they're too downtrodden, they're too stifled. And then we rarely hear about the Jewish people in Vaira, other than to see them sheltered and protected in Goshen, as some of the Makos um, are, are separated between or distinguished between Goshen, for example, Arov. But now, the Maka of Arba in Parsha's bow carries expectations for the Jewish people. Ulaman tisaper biaznei bincha uben bincha. Isa sheris alalti b'mitzrayim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe that this is a Maka that he expects Am Yisrael to describe to their children, to their grandchildren. Um, this is an awakening moment for the Jewish people. That they've experienced seven Makos, redemption has begun, the uh, the burden of slavery has been relaxed a bit. They're expected to be active. They're expected to be storytellers. Um, they're expected to participate in Gulan as Bo unfolds, not just within the Makos and not just within telling the story of the Makos, but that great night of ETS Misraim, the night of Makos Bukharas, Am Yisrael had its own agenda. And I'll try to talk about this during Makos Bukharas, the agenda of, of Karben Pesach. Um, in fact... The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu tells Am Yisrael they should tell this to their grandchildren is itself a very, very uh, inspiring and liberating vision. 
slaves very rarely have sense of future and family and, and children and grandchildren. In fact, slaves al pi halacha, halacha can have no yichus. Their children aren't theirs. Their grandchildren aren't theirs. Their entire family situation is is uh, one which is not owned, which is not uh, which is which is not under their authorship, under their control. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu tells Amishol, "You'll tell your children, your grandchildren," isn't just isn't just a set of expectations for them to be active, but it's also a promise and a vision that this liberation is really happening, and that slaves will be parents, and that and that servants will one day be will be homemakers. Um, so a lot is happening new. This is a real change. I mentioned some of the changes in Barad, but it's clear that if the changes in Barad are subtle, the amount of psukim, the the phrase kol magei here the changes, the transition in Arba are very, very bold, are very broad. And again, Rabbi Yehuda connected Barad with Arba, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but really Arba, Choshech, and Makas Bacharth are to be seen as a separate unit in terms of their intensity, in terms of their attack on, on basics. This isn't Egyptian society being dismantled as those middle three or four, Arav, Dever, Shechin. This is now basics. People can no longer eat. They're starving to death. Arba, Choshech. They can't walk, they can't stand, they can't talk, they're immobilized. Man becomes like a plant, and of course, makas bacharas, man dies. So, if you want to see the makos as three different levels of assault on the Egyptians, the first three assault, the Egyptian technology, the Nile, the construction industry, in, in the case of Kenim, the middle three attack Egyptian society, the ability for human beings to draw a boundary between civilization and the jungle to live together in concert in large groups, uh, which is devastated by Dever, which is eliminated by Shechin. The last three makos, Arba, Choshech, and Makas Bukharas, are attacks on basic human existence, not social existence, not technological prowess, but just simply the ability to eat, walk, talk, see, and, and live. So it's clear that there's a tremendous transition occurring in Parsha's bow with Parsha's Arba. Parshas Ar- uh, the, the Makkah of Arab, excuse me, sustains this attack on the Egyptian breadbasket, which I try to highlight throughout most of the Makos. This is a common theme from the attack on the Nile, the fish, the water, to the Tzvardeas, which disrupted the cooking and the baking, to the Kinim, the no longer plant, along with the shutting down the agricultural industry, and also the construction industry, um, to Barad, which attacked directly that fruit and those trees which had ripened. And Arba now is completing the task and is finishing off. This is really the the the, the nail, the final nail in the coffin for Egyptian agriculture, the Egyptian breadbasket. And it's uncommon for the Torah to link two makos. There are no two makos that are overtly linked. There are many, many different casual references, cross-referencing of one maka to another. But in this case... The Torah is explicit that the Arba um, ate all the produce, all the agriculture, which was left over from the Barad. So, just like that section in Tehillim, Perak Ayin Ches, twins, Barad and Arba, so too the Psukim in Parshas Bo tethers the two Makos. And the primary tethering is because this was a dual attack on Egyptian agriculture. So the, the Egyptian agricultural system, the, the ability to feed this, this teeming nation, and this has always been Egypt's challenge, the overpopulation of Egypt, the struggle to feed this nation, 
this struggle which they had championed in Sefer Bereshis as a model for the rest of this world. They had outlived the famine, outlasted the famine. They couldn't eat. The fish was taken, the food was taken, the meat was taken. The agricultural industry ceased to a halt. And then, at this point, uh, with Barad and Arba, they, they simply were starving. There was nothing for them to eat. And it's interesting because they're also both very similar because um, actually, they're, they're dissimilar. The Chassam Sefer points out a very interesting irony. Typically, locust infestations, locust invasions occur during very dry spells in the prairie lands. It's necessary to have this heated environment for the Arba to, to grow, for the Arba to spring to life, to hatch. And for the Arba to come so quickly on the heels of this very moist and wet and thunderstorm, copious amounts of water was ironic, and it's not something that anyone expected, and it once again demonstrated that this was supernatural. Keep in mind that the Arba had to be summoned by a very, very hot east wind, Ruach Kadim. I'll talk about the wind a little bit later. The wind tried had to dry up, from a purely natural standpoint, had to dry up the land of Egypt and, and, and heat it up, so that uh, take away all the ice of the Barad, so that the conditions were appropriate, were suitable for an Arba infestation. So these are just some of the um, obvious obvious elements of Arbe. There are two less obvious issues of Arbe. Number one, if there's one maka that Arba seems to be parallel to, both substantively and textually, many, many references. There's a reference to Choshech, as I mentioned before, it's tethered to Barad. But if there's one maka which, again, substantively and textually is parallel to Arba, it is Tzvardea. The Maka of Tzvardea. There are many, many different references. Number one, this constant statement that the Arba and the Tzvardea will assault the Gvul of Eretz Mitzrayim, the boundaries of Eretz Mitzrayim, the borders of Mitzrayim. Number two, that they entered the homes. Not just that they attacked the land and they came from the Nile, but they entered the homes. Something that people don't always recognize about Arba, the Arba, once they finished, it seems, once they finished off very quickly, very rapidly, all the agriculture and priders, they actually entered or were threatening to enter Paro's palace, and so Paro rushed over to Moshe and prayed to remove this mothers, this death. Um, interestingly, not just um, textually, but obviously these are two very, very similar creatures, especially if Tzvardea are frogs. Obviously they belong to different families. The frog is an amphibian, the arba is an insect, but the more similar than any of the other makos, even the arov, um, when Paro davens to, uh, to Moshe, pleads with Moshe, he asks in each case, V'yasar, let's remove this Tzvardea, let's remove this Arba. Many, many references, textually, that point to the commonality between the two. And you don't really even need those textual references, because any school child, if you ask them which two makos are more similar, which is the most similar to Tzvardea, he or she should be able to highlight Arba, as a natural, structural parallel to Makas Tzvardea. Why are they so paralleled? They enter the homes, they attack the Gvul, they, uh, Pyro pleads that they should be removed. They're paralleled in order to highlight one difference. And ironically, it's the difference in how they were removed, 
but their removal mechanism underscores the difference between the Arba and Tzvardea. When the Tzvardea are eliminated as the Maka, when the Maka of Tzvardea is terminated, so it's very clear that they return to their natural habitat, which is part of Mitzrayim. The Saru HaTzvardim Mimchami Botecha, Moshe tells Paro, I will remove the Tzvardea, from you, your homes, your servants, and your people. But they will remain in the Nile. They will no longer attack you from the Nile. They will no longer rise up in such multitudes from the Nile. So they return to their natural habitat in Egypt. However, in the case of Arabe, it's very, very clear, and the same words are used, not a single Arba remains in the boundaries of Egypt. Contrast that with its Fardea. They will remain in the Ar. They will remain in Egypt. The Arba, they will not remain in Mitzrayim because a, a, a westerly wind came and took them to the Amsaf. An easterly wind brought them and a westerly wind took them out and station them at the Yamsuf. The Ramban makes a very clear point of this. The Ramban actually tries to trace it historically. The Ramban believes that Tzvardeh were crocodiles, and he says, we all know crocodiles still exist and still habitat, habitate Egypt. Whereas Ramban says, there never was an attack of locusts on Egypt from that day onwards. Some supernatural intervention that Arba never returned. But thematically and symbolically, this is very important for two reasons. The Tzvardea were natural to the Egyptian day-to-day life. They saw frogs, they saw crocodiles. The volume, the militancy, the belligerence, the croaking, coming out of this Nile River perhaps, not just from the woodlands, it demonstrated HaKadosh Baruch Hu's strong hand, the conversion of the Nile into a pond. It was miraculous, it was punitive, it was penal. But the Egyptians recognized these animals, these amphibians, these reptiles. The Arabs were totally new, they were unknown to the Egyptians. And the fact that they were unknown, they were not part of the Egyptian landscape, not before, not after, and that's why the Torah twice during the description of Arabe describes this was something that had never occurred from the time that Egypt it never occurred to Egypt. The Torah repeats it twice. It never happened, it never will happen. It's something very far and brought on by a, a wind. An east wind brought it, the west wind took it away. Two things about this non-natural Arba. Number one, it had the sense, as all Arba does, of this creation of ex nihilo, something from nothing. Obviously, we all know the Arba hatch, the larvae hatch, and there's a set of natural conditions that lead to this massive, massive springing to life of literally, literally, billions of locusts. Just imagine the scene of this locust cuts across the prairie and shaves the prairie, turns it from green into brown. I mean, 
literally billions of locusts came on Egypt. So many that he actually covered the sky and turned it into as a foreshadowing of Choshech. It was dark in Mitzrayim because of the Arba. Choshech happened before Makas Choshech even began. This had the sense of creation ex nihilo. Obviously, Arbet are not created out of nothing. Once HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, there's no longer ex nihilo creation, there's no longer yesh me'ayin, Hashem doesn't create anything new. But Arbet is the closest experience to something totally new. Um, there's an interesting pasuk in Tehillim Kuftes, in which the author talks about waking up suddenly, and his metaphor to describe waking up suddenly out of nowhere is, Nin arti, I woke up ka'arbe, like arbe. I woke up very quickly, like arbe. Nin arti ka'arbe. Because that's the sense we have in arbe, that arbe just comes from nothing. You don't, you don't see them there, you don't recognize the existence, and all of a sudden you're besieged by these swarming, swarming locusts. And this was an opportunity for Kodesh Baruch Hu, as with Barat, to, to draw the Egyptians' attention, not just to their bonus shalom as a strong force, able to outdo all the magicians, but as a, a god who could combine fire and ice in Barat, as a god who could punish, at the same time having compassion, in the case of Barat, and allowing people to, to be saved, to spare themselves by staying inside. And in the case of Arba, this is a continuation uh, of of Hakadosh Baruch Hu's demonstrating his role in creating the world. He could create something that was unknown to the Egyptians, that wasn't indigenous, not just manipulating or or exploiting those natural forces in Egypt and augmenting them, or turning them against the Egyptians, or devastating the Nile, but creating something from nothing, or so it seemed. Though clearly it wasn't something from nothing. It seemed that way. And that's why it's important for Arba and Sardeh to be parallel. Sometimes the Torah parallels two objects or two ideas very, very closely, very, very strictly, simply to highlight the one difference. They're similar in this, 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 and that, but this is the difference. If they won't be so similar, you won't be able to detect the difference. But there's one difference that stands out. And this is the difference that Arbiz is, is not is a foreign implant. It's something new. It's something which is quote unquote created, brought on by winds. And Akash Baruch was seen as a creator. But it's also foreign and non indigenous because it also carries the sense of an army that invades Egypt. If you read Yoel, in which locusts are the punishment sent by Akash Baruch to to, to punish the evil people. HaKadosh Baruch Hu clearly, clearly identifies the Arba as his army. Cheli Agadol. The word Arba comes from the word Harbe. Many, many soldiers, uniform. All following, almost in sync with one another. All marching in the same direction, eating the same food. It's, 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 it's scary in its uniformity. Arba to the Egyptians was an invasion. An invasion is a foreign force that comes and goes and simply raises the land, erases the vegetation, erases the people. And part of the Makos was warfare, and this was the consummation of warfare. 
Choshech and Becharos had larger metaphysical connotations, and we'll talk about them. This is the conclusion, the Medrash that talks about Rabbi Levi, and the Medrash that talks about the Makos as a warfare, as a tactical war against the Egyptians, sees Arba as the conclusion of the war. First you cut off the water source, and then you shoot some arrows, and some fiery boulders, and then you send in the infantry. Arba is the infantry. Arba is the invasion. Arba are the massive, massive forces of soldiers invading Egypt. And Chazal constantly referred to this, these Prakim and Yoel, the first parak in particular, in which the Arba are described as, Chili Agadol, my army. I've dispatched my army. Arba was a Kaddish Baruch Hu warring with the Egyptians, and that's why when the Arba was removed, they were relocated to the Yamsuf because the final chapter in the war was Yamsuf. That was the final moment of warfare. That's when Am Yisrael finally recognized HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a warrior, and they exclaimed, Adonai Ishmael Chama, Adonai Shemo. So many elements of Kriyas Yamsuf were based on warfare. This was the real, the, the real climax of the war. So, Metaphorically, the Arba were relocated to the Yamsa for that final, final battle. According to one day in Chazal, the Arba were active during Kriyas Yamsa. The Egyptians were also afflicted by Arba. Even if they weren't afflicted by Arba, symbolically, the warfare which the Arba conducted was relocated to the Yamsa for the final chapter, for the final stage. And that's something which Arba conveys, which Svardaya doesn't. No one says Svardaya is an army of Akarish Baruchu. Frogs jump in different directions. They don't march in uniform. They're not as numerous, even in, in an infestation of frogs. They're croakers. They're not eaters. They don't, they don't, they don't, um, Paro is, is afraid of death. Why was he afraid that the Arabic were going to cause them? How can locusts kill people? So Chazal talk about the supernatural locusts with fangs and teeth and mandibles and claws. But even if they were the average locusts that we know of, the terror, the sense of being invaded by something foreign that doesn't belong to your habitat, to your ecosystem. That's the difference between Arba and Svardaya, and it takes commonality between Arba and Svardaya to highlight the similarity, just to punctuate the difference between the indigenous nature of the frogs of Svardaya or the crocodiles, and the foreign invasion of the Arba, as well as the element of creation. This sense that the Arba was an army wasn't just directed at the Egyptians as the victims of this invasion, but also at Am Yisrael. There's no mention of the Arba sparing Goshen. Unlike some of the other Makos, in which the Torah is very clear that the Makos didn't visit Goshen, the simple reading is that the Arba did visit Goshen. Now, whether Am Yisrael suffered, maybe their food was spared, maybe their food wasn't grown food, maybe they had food stored away. But the Torah is very clear that the Arba is covering the entire boundary, the entire borders, including Goshen. Why did the Arba visit Goshen? Because this message, this metaphor, this HaKadosh Baruch Hu has dispatched his army, is not just a metaphor intended to terrorize the Egyptians, that Hashem's army was conducting warfare with the Egyptians. But it's also meant to awaken the Jewish people, who will one day be seen as HaKadosh Baruch Hu's army, who should see themselves as HaKadosh Baruch Hu's army, literally, to fight the wars of Canaan in a few months, because that was the original plan, to be in Eretz Canaan within a few months of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Not just literally as the army of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but figuratively as HaKadosh Baruch Hu's messengers, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's agents. That's why this call to awaken Am Yisrael is not just situated in the beginning of Baal, because Baal represents the transition into redemption from just the 
punishing of the Egyptians in Parshas Ve'era, Parshas Bo is the, the actual redemption. But Arabic per se has a special message for Jewish nationhood. And we have a mission, we have a, a legacy, we have a destiny, we are the Tzivos Hashem, the end of Parshas Bo, HaKadosh Baruch Hu refers to us as Tzivos in that day, I'm just trying to find the Pasuk, this is Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Nun Aleph, in the end of Bo, after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Hotzi Hashem Es B'nei Yisrael, Me'eretz Mitzrayim, Al Tzivos Sam, as an army, or in Perak Yud Beis, Pasuk Mem Aleph, Vahib Yetzim Ahiyam Ozei Yetzu, called Tzivos Hashem Me'eretz Mitzrayim, again, army in both senses, army in a literal sense, marching towards Eretz Kinnon to conquer the land, and army as a uniform, disciplined group, following HaKadosh Baruch Hu's command, implementing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's needs in our world. So Arba wasn't as much of a punishment as much of a sign. That's why Arba is described as Ososai. Once you see Ososai, it punished the Egyptians, it devastated the food industry, it, uh, it, 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 it certainly caused actual death, but the messages of Arba, the metaphoric, obviously Arba is, is a tremendous metaphor. Many ways to punish people, but it's clear that when you're being punished with Arba, it's a metaphor. There are, there are messages that the Arba are conveying. One message was that this was a creation out of nowhere. That's why Arba has to be something foreign. Another message, this is an invasion of an army, again, a foreign invasion. If it's seen as an army, the message of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's army is not just directed at the Egyptians, but at HaKadosh Baruch Hu's future human army, Am Yisrael.